Saving yourself. Doctors won't make you healthy. Nutritionists won't make you slim. Teachers won't make you smart. Gurus won't make you calm. Mentors won't make you rich. Trainers won't make you fit. Ultimately, you have to take responsibility. Save yourself. Choosing to be yourself. A lot of what goes on today is what many of you are doing right now. Beating yourself up and scribbling notes and saying, I need to do this and I need to do that and I need to do... No, you don't need to do anything. All you should do is what you want to do. If you stop trying to figure out how to do things the way other people want you to do them, you get to listen to the little voice inside your head that wants to do things a certain way. Then you get to be you. I never met my greatest mentor. I wanted so much to be like him. But his message was the opposite. Be yourself with passionate intensity. No one in the world is going to beat you at being you. You're never going to be as good at being me as I am. I'm never going to be as good at being you as you are. Certainly, listen and absorb, but don't try to emulate. It's a fool's errand. Instead, each person is uniquely qualified at something. They have some specific knowledge, capability, and desire nobody else in the world does, purely from the combinatorics of human DNA and development. The combinatorics of human DNA and experience are staggering. You will never meet any two humans who are substitutable for each other. Your goal in life is to find the people, business, project, or art that needs you the most. There is something out there just for you. What you don't want to do is build checklists and decision frameworks built on what other people are doing. You're never going to be them. You'll never be good at being somebody else. To make an original contribution, you have to be irrationally obsessed with something. Choosing to care for yourself. My number one priority in life above my happiness, above my family, above my work, is my own health. It starts with my physical health. Second, it's my mental health. Third, it's my spiritual health. Then, it's my family's health. Then, it's my family's well-being. After that, I can go out and do whatever I need to do with the rest of the world. Nothing like a health problem to turn up the contrast dial for the rest of life. What about the modern world steers us away from the way humans are meant to live? There are many, many things. There are a number on the physical side. We have diets we are not evolved to eat. A correct diet should probably look closer to a paleo diet, mostly eating vegetables with a small amount of meat and berries. In terms of exercise, we're probably meant to play instead of running on a treadmill. We're probably evolved to use all of our five senses equally as opposed to favoring the visual cortex. In modern society, almost all of our inputs and communication are visual. 
We're not meant to walk in shoes. A lot of back and foot problems come from shoes. We're not meant to have clothes that keep us warm all of the time. We're meant to have some cold exposure. It kickstarts your immune system. We're not evolved to live in a perfectly sterile and clean environment. It leads to allergies and an untrained immune system. This is known as the hygiene hypothesis. We're evolved to live in much smaller tribes and to have more family around us. I partially grew up in India, and in India, everybody is in your business. There's a cousin, an aunt, an uncle who is in your face, which makes it hard to be depressed because you are never alone. I'm not referring to people with chemical depression. I'm talking more about the existential angst and malaise teenagers seem to go through. But on the other hand, you have no privacy, so you can't be free. There are trade-offs. We're not meant to check our phone every five minutes. The constant mood swings of getting a like, then an angry comment, makes us into anxious creatures. We evolved for scarcity, but live in abundance. There's a constant struggle to say no when your genes always want to say yes. Yes to sugar, yes to staying in this relationship, yes to alcohol, yes to drugs, yes, yes, yes. Our bodies don't know how to say no. When everyone is sick, we no longer consider it a disease. Diet. Outside of math, physics, and chemistry, there isn't much settled science. We're still arguing over what the optimal diet is. Do you have an opinion on the ketogenic diet? It seems really difficult to follow. It makes sense for the brain and the body to have a backup mechanism. For example, in the Ice Ages, humans evolved without many plants available. At the same time, we have been eating plants for thousands of years. I don't think plants are bad for you, but something closer to the paleo diet is probably correct. I think the interplay between sugar and fat is really interesting. Fat is what makes you satiated. Fatty foods make you feel full. The easiest way to feel full is to go on a ketogenic diet where you're eating tons of bacon all the time and you're going to feel almost nauseous and not want to look at fat anymore. Sugar makes you hungry. Sugar signals to your body there's this incredible food resource in the environment we're not evolved for, so you rush out to get sugar. The problem is the sugar effect dominates the fat effect. If you eat a fatty meal and you throw some sugar in, the sugar is going to deliver hunger and fat is going to deliver the calories and you're just going to binge. That's why all desserts are large combinations of fat and carbs together. In nature, it's very rare to find carbs and fat together. In nature, I find carbs and fat together in coconuts, in mangoes, maybe in bananas, but it's basically tropical fruits. The combination of sugar and fat together is really deadly. You've got to watch out for that in your diet. I'm not an expert, and the problem is diet and nutrition are like politics. Everybody thinks they're an expert. Their identity is wrapped up in it because what they've been eating, or what they think they should be eating, is obviously the correct answer. Everybody has a little religion. It's just a really difficult topic to talk about. I will just say in general, 
Any sensible diet avoids the combination of sugar and fat together. Dietary fat drives satiety. Dietary sugar drives hunger. The sugar effect dominates. Control your appetite accordingly. Most fit and healthy people focus much more on what they eat than how much. Quality control is easier than and leads to quantity control. Ironically, fasting from a low-carb paleo base is easier than portion control. Once the body detects food, it overrides the brain. What I wonder about Wonder Bread is how it can stay soft at room temperature for months. If bacteria won't eat it, should you? It has been 5,000 years, and we're still arguing over whether meat is poisonous or plants are poisonous. Ditch the extremists and any food invented in the last few hundred years. When it comes to medicine and nutrition, subtract before you add. My trainer sends me photos of his meals, and it reminds me we are all flavor addicts. World's simplest diet. The more processed the food, the less one should consume. Exercise. The harder the workout, the easier the day. What habit would you say most positively impacts your life? The daily morning workout. That has been a complete game changer. It's made me feel healthier, younger. It's made me not go out late. It came from one simple thing, which is everybody says, I don't have time. Basically, whenever you throw any so-called good habit at somebody, they'll have an excuse for themselves. Usually the most common is, I don't have time. I don't have time is just another way of saying it's not a priority. What you really have to do is say whether it is a priority or not. If something is your number one priority, then you will do it. That's just the way life works. If you've got a fuzzy basket of 10 or 15 different priorities, you're going to end up getting none of them. What I did was decide my number one priority in life, above my happiness, above my family, above my work, is my own health. It starts with my physical health. Because my physical health became my number one priority, then I could never say I don't have time. In the morning, I work out, and however long it takes is how long it takes. I do not start my day until I've worked out. I don't care if the world is imploding and melting down. It can wait another 30 minutes until I'm done working out. It's pretty much every day. There are a few days where I've had to take a break because I'm traveling or I'm injured or sick or something. I can count on one hand the number of breaks I take every year. One month of consistent yoga and I feel 10 years younger. To stay flexible is to stay young. How you make a habit doesn't matter. Do something every day. It almost doesn't matter what you do. The people who are obsessing over whether to do weight training, tennis, Pilates, the high-intensity interval training method, the happy body or whatever, they're missing the point. The important thing is to do something every day. It doesn't matter what it is. 
The best workout for you is one you're excited enough to do every day. Walking meetings. Brain works better. Exercise and sunlight. Shorter, less pleasantries. More dialogue, less monologue. No slides. End easily by walking back. Like everything in life, if you are willing to make the short-term sacrifice, you'll have the long-term benefit. My physical trainer, Jersey Gregorick, is a really wise, brilliant guy. He always says, easy choices, hard life. Hard choices, easy life. Basically, if you are making the hard choices right now in what to eat, you're not eating all the junk food you want and making the hard choice to work out. So your lifelong term will be easy. You won't be sick. You won't be unhealthy. The same is true of values. The same is true of saving up for a rainy day. The same is true of how you approach your relationships. If you make the easy choices right now, your overall life will be a lot harder. Meditation is intermittent fasting for the mind. Meditation plus mental strength. An emotion is our evolved biology predicting the future impact of a current event. In modern settings, it's usually exaggerated or wrong. Why is meditation so powerful? Your breath is one of the few places where your autonomic nervous system meets your voluntary nervous system. It's involuntary, but you can also control it. I think a lot of meditation practices put an emphasis on the breath because it is a gateway into your autonomic nervous system. There are many, many cases in the medical and spiritual literature of people controlling their bodies at levels that should be autonomous. Your mind is such a powerful thing. What's so unusual about your forebrain sending signals to your hindbrain and your hindbrain routing resources to your entire body? You can do it just by breathing. Relaxed breathing tells your body you're safe. Then, your forebrain doesn't need as many resources as it normally does. Now, the extra energy can be sent to your hindbrain and it can reroute those resources to the rest of your body. I'm not saying you can beat whatever illness you have just because you activated your hindbrain, but you're devoting most of the energy normally required to care about the external environment to the immune system. I highly recommend listening to Tim Ferriss's podcast with Wim Hof. He is a walking miracle. Wim's nickname is the Iceman. He holds the world record for the longest time spent in an ice bath and swimming in freezing cold water. I was very inspired by him, not only because he's capable of superhuman physical feats, but because he does it while being incredibly kind and happy, which is not easy to accomplish. He advocates cold exposure because he believes people are too separate from their natural environment. We're constantly clothed, fed, and warm. Our bodies have lost touch with the cold. The cold is important because it can activate the immune system. So he advocates taking long ice baths. Being from the Indian subcontinent, I'm strongly against the idea of ice baths. But Wim inspired me 
to give cold showers a try. And I did so by using the Wim Hof breathing method. It involves hyperventilating to get more oxygen into your blood, which raises your core temperature. Then you can go into the shower. The first few cold showers were hilarious because I'd slowly ease myself in, wincing the entire way. I started about four or five months ago. Now, I turn the shower on full blast and then I walk right in. I don't give myself any time to hesitate. As soon as I hear the voice in my head telling me how cold it's going to be, I know I have to walk in. I learned a very important lesson from this. Most of our suffering comes from avoidance. Most of the suffering from a cold shower is the tiptoeing your way in. Once you're in, you're in. It's not suffering, it's just cold. Your body saying it's cold is different than your mind saying it's cold. Acknowledge your body saying it's cold. Look at it, deal with it, accept it, but don't mentally suffer over it. Taking a cold shower for two minutes isn't going to kill you. Having a cold shower helps you relearn that lesson every morning. Now, hot showers are just one less thing I need out of life. Meditation is intermittent fasting for the mind. Too much sugar leads to a heavy body, and too many distractions lead to a heavy mind. Time spent undistracted and alone in self-examination, journaling, meditation, resolves the unresolved and takes us from mentally fat to fit. Do you have a current meditation practice? I think meditation is like dieting, where everyone is supposedly following a regimen. Everyone says they do it, but nobody actually does it. The real set of people who meditate on a regular basis, I've found, are pretty rare. I've identified and tried at least four different forms of meditation. The one I found works best for me is called choiceless awareness or non-judgmental awareness. As you're going about your daily business, hopefully there's some nature, and you're not talking to anybody else, you practice learning to accept the moment you're in without making judgments. You don't think, oh, there's a homeless guy over there, better cross the street, or look at someone running by and say, he's out of shape and I'm in better shape than him. If I saw a guy with a bad hair day, I would at first think, haha, he has a bad hair day. Well, why am I laughing at him to make me feel better about myself? And why am I trying to make me feel better about my own hair? Because I'm losing my hair and I'm afraid it's going to go away. What I find is 90% of thoughts I have are fear-based. The other 10% may be desire-based. You don't make any decisions. You don't judge anything. You just accept everything. If I do that for 10 or 15 minutes while walking around, I end up in a very peaceful, grateful state. Choiceless awareness works well for me. You could also do transcendental meditation, which is where you're using repetitive chanting to create a white noise in your head to bury your thoughts. Or you can just very keenly and very alertly be aware of your thoughts as they happen. As you watch your thoughts, you realize how many of them are fear-based. The moment you recognize a fear, without even trying, it goes away.
After a while, your mind quiets. When your mind quiets, you stop taking everything around you for granted. You start to notice the details. You think, wow, I live in such a beautiful place. It's so great that I have clothes and I can go to Starbucks and get a coffee anytime. Look at these people. Each one has a perfectly valid and complete life going on in their own heads. It pops us out of the story we're constantly telling ourselves. If you stop talking to yourself for even 10 minutes, if you stop obsessing over your own story, you'll realize we are really far up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and life is pretty good. Life hack. When in bed, meditate. Either you will have a deep meditation or fall asleep. Victory either way. Another method I've learned is to just sit there and you close your eyes for at least one hour a day. You surrender to whatever happens. Don't make any effort whatsoever. You make no effort for something and you make no effort against anything. If there are thoughts running through your mind, you let the thoughts run. For your entire life, things have been happening to you. Some good, some bad, most of which you have processed and dissolved, but a few stuck with you. Over time, more and more stuck with you, and they almost became like these barnacles stuck to you. You lost your childhood sense of wonder and of being present and happy. You lost your inner happiness because you built up this personality of unresolved pain, errors, fears, and desires that glommed onto you like a bunch of barnacles. How do you get those barnacles off you? What happens in meditation is you're sitting there and not resisting your mind. These things will start bubbling up. It's like a giant inbox of unanswered emails going back to your childhood. They will come out one by one, and you will be forced to deal with them. You will be forced to resolve them. Resolving them doesn't take any work. You just observe them. Now you're an adult with some distance, time, and space from previous events, and you can just resolve them. You can be much more objective about how you view them. Over time, you will resolve a lot of these deep-seated, unresolved things you have in your mind. Once they're resolved, there will come a day when you sit down to meditate, and you'll hit a mental inbox zero. When you open your mental email, and there are none, that is a pretty amazing feeling. It's a state of joy and bliss and peace. Once you have it, you don't want to give it up. If you can get a free hour of bliss every morning just by sitting and closing your eyes, that is worth its weight in gold. It will change your life. I recommend meditating one hour each morning because anything less is not enough time to really get deep into it. I would recommend, if you really want to try meditation, try 60 days of one hour a day, first thing in the morning. After about 60 days, you will be tired of listening to your own mind. You will have resolved a lot of issues, or you have heard them enough to see through those fears and issues. Meditation isn't hard. All you have to do is sit there and do nothing. Just sit down. Close your eyes and say, I'm just going to give myself a break for an hour. 
This is my hour off from life. This is the hour I'm not going to do anything. If the thoughts come, thoughts come. I'm not going to fight them. I'm not going to embrace them. I'm not going to think harder about them. I'm not going to reject them. I'm just going to sit here for an hour with my eyes closed, and I'm going to do nothing. How hard is that? Why can you not do anything for an hour? What's so hard about giving yourself an hour-long break? Was there a moment you realized you could control how you interpreted things? I think one problem people have is not recognizing they can control how they interpret and respond to a situation. I think everyone knows it's possible. There's a great Osho lecture titled, The Attraction for Drugs is Spiritual. He talks about why do people do drugs, everything from alcohol to psychedelics to cannabis. They're doing it to control their mental state. They're doing it to control how they react. Some people drink because it helps them not care as much, or they're potheads because they can zone out, or they do psychedelics to feel very present or connected to nature. The attraction of drugs is spiritual. All of society does this to some extent. People chasing thrills in action sports or flow states or orgasms, any of these states people strive for are people trying to get out of their own heads. They're trying to get away from the voice in their heads, the overdeveloped sense of self. At the very least, I do not want my sense of self to continue to develop and strengthen as I get older. I want it to be weaker and more muted so I can be more in present everyday reality, accept nature and the world for what it is, and appreciate it very much as a child would. The first thing to realize is you can observe your mental state. Meditation doesn't mean you're suddenly going to gain the superpower to control your internal state. The advantage of meditation is recognizing just how out of control your mind is. It is like a monkey flinging feces, running around the room, making trouble, shouting, and breaking things. It's completely uncontrollable. It's an out-of-control mad person. You have to see this mad creature in operation before you feel a certain distaste toward it and start separating yourself from it. In that separation is liberation. You realize, oh, I don't want to be that person. Why am I so out of control? Awareness alone calms you down. Insight meditation lets you run your brain in debug mode until you realize you're just a subroutine in a larger program. I try to keep an eye on my internal monologue. It doesn't always work. In the computer programming sense, I try to run my brain in debugging mode as much as possible. When I'm talking to someone, or when I'm engaged in a group activity, it's almost impossible because your brain has too many things to handle. If I'm by myself, like just this morning, I'm brushing my teeth and I start thinking forward to a podcast. I started going through this little fantasy where I imagined Shane asking me a bunch of questions and I was fantasy answering them. Then I caught myself. I put my brain in debug mode and just watched every little instruction go by. I said, why am I fantasy future planning? Why can't I just stand here and brush my teeth? 
It's the awareness my brain was running off in the future and planning some fantasy scenario out of ego. I was like, well, do I really care if I embarrass myself? Who cares? I'm going to die anyway. This is all going to go to zero, and I won't remember anything, so this is pointless. Then I shut down, and I went back to brushing my teeth. I was noticing how good the toothbrush was and how good it felt. Then the next moment, I'm off to thinking something else. I have to look at my brain again and say, do I really need to solve this problem right now? 95% of what my brain runs off and tries to do, I don't need to tackle in that exact moment. If the brain is like a muscle, I'll be better off resting it, being at peace. When a particular problem arises, I'll immerse myself in it. Right now, as we're talking, I'd rather dedicate myself to being completely lost in the conversation and to being 100% focused on this as opposed to thinking about, oh, when I brushed my teeth, did I do it the right way? The ability to singularly focus is related to the ability to lose yourself and be present, happy, and, ironically, more effective. It's almost like you're taking yourself out of a certain frame and you're watching things from a different perspective, even though you're in your own mind. Buddhists talk about awareness versus the ego. They're really talking about how you can think of your brain, your consciousness, as a multi-layered mechanism. There's a core base, kernel-level OS running. Then there are applications running on top. I like to think of it as computer and geek speak. I'm actually going back to my awareness level of OS, which is always calm, always peaceful, and generally happy and content. I'm trying to stay in awareness mode and not activate the monkey mind, which is always worried, frightened, and anxious. It serves incredible purpose, but I try not to activate the monkey mind until I need it. When I need it, I want to just focus on that. If I run it 24-7, I waste energy and the monkey mind becomes me. I am more than my monkey mind. Another thing, spirituality, religion, Buddhism, or anything you follow will teach you over time you are more than just your mind. You are more than just your habits. You are more than just your preferences. You're a level of awareness. You're a body. Modern humans, we don't live enough in our bodies. We don't live enough in our awareness. We live too much in this internal monologue in our heads, all of which is just programmed into you by society and by the environment when you were younger. You are basically a bunch of DNA that reacted to environmental effects when you were younger. You recorded the good and bad experiences, and you use them to prejudge everything thrown against you. Then you're using those experiences, constantly trying to predict and change the future. As you get older, the sum of preferences you've accumulated is very, very large. These habitual reactions end up as runaway freight trains controlling your mood. We should control our own moods. Why don't we study how to control our moods? What a masterful thing it would be if you could say, right now, I would like to be in the curious state, and then you can genuinely get yourself into the curious state. Or say, I want to be in a mourning state. I'm mourning a loved one and I want to grieve for them. 
I really want to feel that. I don't want to be distracted by a computer programming problem due tomorrow. The mind itself is a muscle. It can be trained and conditioned. It has been haphazardly conditioned by society to be out of our control. If you look at your mind with awareness and intent, a 24-7 job you're working at every moment, I think you can unpack your own mind, your emotions, thoughts, and reactions. Then you can start reconfiguring. You can start rewriting this program to what you want. Meditation is turning off society and listening to yourself. It only works when done for its own sake. Hiking is walking meditation. Journaling is writing meditation. Praying is gratitude meditation. Showering is accidental meditation. Sitting quietly is direct meditation. Choosing to build yourself. The greatest superpower is the ability to change yourself. What's the biggest mistake you've made in your life, and how did you recover? I've made a class of mistakes I would summarize the same way. The mistakes were obvious only in hindsight through one exercise, which is asking yourself, when you're 30, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? And when you're 40, what advice would you give your 30-year-old self? Maybe if you're younger, you can do it by every five years. Sit down and say, Okay, 2007, what was I doing? How was I feeling? 2008, what was I doing? How was I feeling? 2009, what was I doing? How was I feeling? Life is going to play out the way it's going to play out. There will be some good and some bad. Most of it is actually just up to your interpretation. You're born, you have a set of sensory experiences, and then you die. How you choose to interpret those experiences is up to you, and different people interpret them in different ways. Really, I wish I had done all of the same things, but with less emotion and less anger. The most celebrated example would be when I was younger. I started a company. This company did well, but I didn't do well, so I sued some of the people involved. It was a good outcome for me in the end, and everything worked out okay, but there was a lot of angst and a lot of anger. Today, I wouldn't have the angst and the anger. I would have just walked up to the people and said, Look, this is what happened. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to do it. This is what's fair. This is what's not. I would have realized the anger and emotions are a huge, completely unnecessary consequence. Now, I'm trying to learn from that and do the same things I think are the right things to do, but without anger and with a very long-term point of view. If you take a very long-term point of view and take the emotion out of it, I wouldn't consider those things mistakes anymore. Again, habits are everything. Everything we are. We are trained in habits from when we are children, including potty training, when to cry and when not to, how to smile and when not to. These things become habits. Behaviors we learn and integrate into ourselves. When we're older, we're a collection of thousands of habits constantly running subconsciously. 
We have a little bit of extra brain power in our neocortex for solving new problems. You become your habits. This came to light for me when my trainer gave me a routine to do every single day. I had never worked out every single day before. It's a light workout. It's not tough on your body, but I did this workout every single day. I realized the incredible, astonishing transformation it had on me, both physically and mentally. To have peace of mind, you have to have peace of body first. This taught me the power of habits. I started realizing it's all about habits. At any given time, I'm either trying to pick up a good habit or discard a previous bad habit. It takes time. If someone says, I want to be fit, I want to be healthy, right now I'm out of shape and I'm fat. Well, nothing sustainable is going to work for you in three months. It's going to be at least a 10-year journey. Every six months, depending on how fast you can do it, you're going to break bad habits and pick up good habits. One of the things Krishnamurti talks about is being in an internal state of revolution. You should always be internally ready for a complete change. Whenever we say we're going to try to do something or try to form a habit, we're wimping out. We're just saying to ourselves, I'm going to buy myself some more time. The reality is when our emotions want us to do something, we just do it. If you want to go approach a pretty girl, if you want to have a drink, if you really desire something, you just go do it. When you say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to be that, you're really putting it off. You're giving yourself an out. At least if you're self-aware, you can think, I say I want to do this, but I don't really because if I really wanted to do it, I would just do it. Commit externally to enough people. For example, if you want to quit smoking, all you have to do is go to everybody you know and say, I quit smoking. I did it. I give you my word. That's all you need to do. Go ahead, right? But most of us say we're not quite ready. We know we don't want to commit ourselves externally. It's important to be honest with yourself and say, Okay, I'm not ready to give up smoking. I like it too much. It is going to be too hard for me to give up. Say instead, I'll set a more reasonable goal for myself. I'll cut down to the following amount. I can commit to that externally. I'm going to work on that for three or six months. When I get there, I'll take the next step as opposed to beating myself up over it. When you really want to change, you just change. But most of us don't really want to change. We don't want to go through the pain just yet. At least recognize it. Be aware of it and give yourself a smaller change you can actually carry out. Impatience with actions, patience with results. Anything you have to do, just get it done. Why wait? You're not getting any younger. Your life is slipping away. You don't want to spend it waiting in line. You don't want to spend it traveling back and forth. You don't want to spend it doing things you know ultimately aren't part of your mission. When you do them, you want to do them as quickly as you can while doing them well with your full attention. But then, 
You just have to be patient with the results because you're dealing with complex systems and many people. It takes a long time for markets to adopt products. It takes time for people to get comfortable working with each other. It takes time for great products to emerge as you polish away, polish away, polish away. Impatience with actions, patience with results. As Nivi said, inspiration is perishable. When you have inspiration, act on it right then and there. Choosing to grow yourself. I don't believe in specific goals. Scott Adams famously said, set up systems, not goals. Use your judgment to figure out what kinds of environments you can thrive in and then create an environment around you so you're statistically likely to succeed. The current environment programs the brain, but the clever brain can choose its upcoming environment. I'm not going to be the most successful person on the planet, nor do I want to be. I just want to be the most successful version of myself while working the least hard possible. I want to live in a way that if my life played out 1,000 times, Naval is successful 999 times. He's not a billionaire, but he does pretty well each time. He may not have nailed life in every regard, but he sets up systems so he's failed in very few places. Remember, I started as a poor kid in India, right? If I can make it, anybody can, in that sense. Obviously, I had all my limbs, my mental faculties, and I did have an education. There are some prerequisites you can't get past. But if you're listening to this book, you probably have the requisite means at your disposal, which is a functioning body and a functioning mind. If there's something you want to do later, do it now. There is no later. How do you personally learn about new subjects? Mostly, I just stay on the basics. Even when I learn physics or science, I stick to the basics. I read concepts for fun. I'm more likely to do something that has arithmetic in it than calculus. I won't be a great physicist at this point. Maybe in the next lifetime, or my kid will do it, but it's too late for me. I have to stick to what I enjoy. Science is, to me the study of truth. It is the only true discipline because it makes falsifiable predictions. It actually changes the world. Applied science becomes technology, and technology is what separates us from the animals and allows us to have things like cell phones, houses, cars, heat, and electricity. Science, to me, is the study of truth, and mathematics is the language of science and nature. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. To me, that is the most devotional thing that I could do, to study the laws of the universe. The same kick that someone might get out of being in Mecca or Medina and bowing to the Prophet, I get the same feeling of awe and small sense of self when I study science. For me, it's unparalleled, and I'd rather stay at the basics. This is the beauty of reading. Do you agree with the idea if you read what everybody else is reading, you're going to think what everyone else is thinking? I think almost everything that people read these days is designed for social approval. I know people who have read 100 regurgitated books on evolution and they've never read Darwin. Think of the number of macroeconomists out there. 
I think most of them have read tons of treatises in economics, but haven't read any Adam Smith. At some level, you're doing it for social approval. You're doing it to fit in with the other monkeys. You're fitting in to get along with the herd. That's not where the returns are in life. The returns in life are being out of the herd. Social approval is inside the herd. If you want social approval, definitely go read what the herd is reading. It takes a level of contrarianism to say, nope, I'm just going to do my own thing. Regardless of the social outcome, I will learn anything I think is interesting. Do you think there's some loss aversion there? Because once you diverge, you're not sure if you're diverging toward a positive outcome or a negative outcome? Absolutely. I think that's why the smartest and the most successful people I know started out as losers. If you view yourself as a loser, as someone who is cast out by society and has no role in normal society, then you will do your own thing and you're much more likely to find a winning path. It helps to start out by saying, I'm never going to be popular. I'm never going to be accepted. I'm already a loser. I'm not going to get what all the other kids have. I've just got to be happy being me. For self-improvement without self-discipline, update your self-image. Everyone's motivated at something. It just depends on the thing. Even the people that we say are unmotivated are suddenly really motivated when they're playing video games. I think motivation is relative, so you just have to find the thing you're into. Grind and sweat, toil and bleed, face the abyss. It's all part of becoming an overnight success. If you had to pass down to your kids one or two principles, what would they be? Number one, read. Read everything you can. And not just the stuff that society tells you is good or even books that I tell you to read. Just read for its own sake. Develop a love for it. Even if you have to read romance novels or paperbacks or comic books, there's no such thing as junk. Just read it all. Eventually, you'll guide yourself to the things that you should and want to be reading. Related to the skill of reading are the skills of mathematics and persuasion. Both skills help you to navigate through the real world. Having the skill of persuasion is important because if you can influence your fellow human beings, you can get a lot done. I think persuasion is an actual skill, so you can learn it, and it's not that hard to do so. Mathematics helps with all the complex and difficult things in life. If you want to make money, if you want to do science, if you want to understand game theory or politics or economics or investments or computers, all of these things have mathematics at the core. It's a foundational language of nature. Nature speaks in mathematics. Mathematics is us reverse-engineering the language of nature, and we have only scratched the surface. The good news is you don't have to know a lot of math. You just have to know basic statistics, arithmetic, etc. You should know statistics and probability forwards and backwards and inside out. Choosing to free yourself. The hardest thing is not doing what you want. It's knowing what you want. Be aware, there are no adults. Everyone makes it up as they go along. You have to find your own path, picking, choosing, and discarding as you see fit. 
Figure it out yourself and do it. How have your values changed? When I was younger, I really, really valued freedom. Freedom was one of my core values. Ironically, it still is. It's probably one of my top three values, but it's now a different definition of freedom. My old definition was freedom to. Freedom to do anything I want. Freedom to do whatever I feel like, whenever I feel like. Now, the freedom I'm looking for is internal freedom. It's freedom from. Freedom from reaction. Freedom from feeling angry. Freedom from being sad. Freedom from being forced to do things. I'm looking for freedom from, internally and externally, whereas before I was looking for freedom to. Advice to my younger self. Be exactly who you are. Holding back means staying in bad relationships and bad jobs for years instead of minutes. Freedom from expectations. I don't measure my effectiveness at all. I don't believe in self-measurement. I feel like this is a form of self-discipline, self-punishment, and self-conflict. If you hurt other people because they have expectations of you, that's their problem. If they have an agreement with you, it's your problem. But if they have an expectation of you, that's completely their problem. It has nothing to do with you. They're going to have lots of expectations out of life. The sooner you can dash their expectations, the better. Courage isn't charging into a machine gun nest. Courage is not caring what other people think. Anyone who has known me for a long time knows my defining characteristic is a combination of being very impatient and willful. I don't like to wait. I hate wasting time. I'm very famous for being rude at parties, events, dinners, where the moment I figure out it's a waste of my time, I leave immediately. Value your time. It is all you have. It's more important than your money. It's more important than your friends. It is more important than anything. Your time is all you have. Do not waste your time. This doesn't mean you can't relax. As long as you're doing what you want, it's not a waste of your time. But if you're not spending your time doing what you want, and you're not earning, and you're not learning, what the heck are you doing? Don't spend your time making other people happy. Other people being happy is their problem. It's not your problem. If you are happy, it makes other people happy. If you're happy, other people will ask you how you became happy, and they might learn from it. But you are not responsible for making other people happy. Freedom from anger. What is anger? Anger is a way to signal as strongly as you can to the other party you're capable of violence. Anger is a precursor to violence. Observe when you're angry. Anger is a loss of control over the situation. Anger is a contract you make with yourself to be in physical and mental and emotional turmoil until reality changes. Anger is its own punishment. An angry person trying to push your head below water is drowning at the same time. Freedom from employment 
People who live far below their means enjoy a freedom that people busy upgrading their lifestyles can't fathom. Once you've truly controlled your own fate, for better or for worse, you'll never let anyone else tell you what to do. A taste of freedom can make you unemployable. Freedom from uncontrolled thinking. A big habit I'm working on is trying to turn off my monkey mind. When we're children, we're pretty blank slates. We live very much in the moment. We essentially just react to our environment through our instincts. We live in what I would call the real world. Puberty is the onset of desire. The first time you really, really want something and you start long-range planning. You start thinking a lot, building an identity and an ego to get what you want. If you walk down the street and there are a thousand people in the street, all thousand are talking to themselves in their head at any given point. They're constantly judging everything they see. They're playing back movies of things that happened to them yesterday. They're living in fantasy worlds of what's going to happen tomorrow. They're just pulled out of base reality. That can be good when you do long-range planning. It can be good when you solve problems. It's good for us as survival and replication machines. I think it's actually very bad for your happiness. To me, the mind should be a servant and a tool, not a master. My monkey mind should not control and drive me 24-7. I want to break the habit of uncontrolled thinking, which is hard. A busy mind accelerates the passage of subjective time. There is no end point to self-awareness and self-discovery. It's a lifelong process you hopefully keep getting better and better at. There is no one meaningful answer, and no one is going to fully solve it unless you're one of these enlightened characters. Maybe some of us will get there, but I'm not likely to, given how involved I am in the rat race. The best case is, I'm a rat who might be able to look up at the clouds once in a while. I think just being aware you're a rat in a race is about as far as most of us are going to get. The Modern Struggle Lone individuals summoning inhuman willpower, fasting, meditating, and exercising, up against armies of scientists and statisticians weaponizing abundant food, screens, and medicine into junk food, clickbait news, infinite porn, endless games, and addictive drugs. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.